Would you please open your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 23? Jeremiah chapter 23, and then keep one finger there, and then we're going to open in 2 Peter chapter 1. So Jeremiah chapter 23, and then 2 Peter 1. Now I invite you to stand if you can. Let's start in verse 26, read, read Jeremiah 23, verse 26 <clears throat> through 29. How long shall there, shall, shall there be lies in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies and who prophesy deceit of their own heart and who think to make my people forget my name by their dreams that they tell one another, even as their fathers forgot my name for Baal? Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. What has straw in common with the wheat, declares the Lord. Is not my word, is not my word like fire, declares Yahweh, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. Now let's go to first second Peter chapter one. Second Peter chapter one. Starting, starting verse 16, Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitness of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard his very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Look at verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Please be seated. Let's pray. What a joy to sing praises to you, Lord. Oh, it's majestic to use our voices to declare your goodness and your power and your justice and your holiness. Before being conquered by your grace, we were singing to other gods to foolish and worthless things. And by your grace, you have changed our hearts and you have truly placed a new song in our mouths. Thank you for that wonderful time of speaking to you through the singing. And now we cry out, speak to us through the preaching. We need to hear your voice. We want to behold your majesty and your power all the mighty deeds that you have performed in history. So help us. Guard us. Help me to be faithful. Help me to be clear. And help the congregation, Lord. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I have four stories. The first one is in the Pilgrim's Progress. Right in the beginning of the Pilgrim's Progress, we read John Bunyan saying, I dream a dream, and behold, I saw a man clothed with rags, standing in a certain place, with his face from his own house, and a book in his hand, and a great burden upon his back. I look and I saw him open the book, and read therein, and as he read, he wept and trembled, and not being able lo longer to contain, he broke out with a lamentable cry, saying, What shall I do? And there is a repetition. A Christian continues to read that book. We read again. He says, Now I saw upon a time when he was walking the fields, that he was as he was, reading in his book and greatly distressed in his mind. And as he read, he burst out as he had done before, crying, What shall I do to be saved? Then if you keep reading, Christian meets with evangelist. And evangelist asks him why he's crying. And he answers, Sir, I perceive by the book in my hand that I am condemned to die, and after that you come judgment. And I find that I am not willing to do the first, nor able to do the second. What's taking place with Christian is that that book is shedding light into his dark heart. And he's beholding the ugliness of his sins and the glory of a Savior. That book is setting Christian on fire, in such a fire that he will forsake everything to meet with his Savior, Jesus Christ. Another one. In J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, there is a very peculiar scene when the motley crew, that group of very interesting creatures and characters, and they're about to embark in their journey. And you remember Galadriel, the elven queen, gives each member a gift before they embark on their journey. And to Frodo, she gives something very peculiar. Frodo, who carries the burden of the ring, he receives a jar of crystal with light. And we read, And you, that's Galadriel speaking, And you, ring bearer, she said, turning to Frodo, I come to you last, who are not last in my thoughts, for I have prepared this. And this vial, she said, is called the light of Arendelle's star, set amid the waters of my fountain. Listen to this. It will shine still brighter when night is about you. May it be a light to you in dark, in dark places, when all other lights go out. I had a series of interesting conversations with one of my sister-in-law, who is a geek in the Lord of the Rings. And she's not here, don't worry. 
<laughs> and we were, I was asking her what she thought about that. And, and bottom line is, I agree with Stephen Dempster, and she could not escape the reality that it is a metaphor for the Word of God. We tried to argue that there was faith, there was hope, but where do you come? Faith, but from hearing the Word of God and hope from the Scriptures itself. So we see the metaphor of the Scriptures as this light shining in dark places. Next one. Here's a real one. In 622 BC, King Josiah, he receives a gift similar to Frodo's. He received the book of the law. And the days are dark in Judah. And as he opens that book, he sees the light of God's holiness and the darkness of a nation's sin. It's brought to the king in his, in his palace, and when he read and interpret the book, he ripped his clothes in desperation. They see themselves in their dire situation for the first time. When a scholar says, it is as if this book shines a light in a very dark place, and immediate measures are taken to use this light to produce change in themselves and in their nation. King Josiah is remembered as a righteous king. In 2 Kings 22 and 23, we hear about the, the discover of this book and all the reformation. There was a reformation in Judah because of this book. So you read 2 Kings 23 and you hear about once this book is brought into the king and the light of the Lord starts to shine, he starts destroying the high places, he starts removing the, the sinful priesthood. They renew the Passover celebration. That's because the light shining in that dark place. And now we move to the final one. 16th century, 1500s A.D., Anno Domini. And similar, the Lord brings a book out of a very dark place, and that's His book. And bringing that book into light, we have a massive reformation. Joe Bickey, he writes, October 31st, and I hope you guys pay attention, please, Kill distractions. Kill the birds that are flying trying to take your, your thoughts away. There's nothing more precious than to know God. October 31st celebrates the anniversary of Martin Luther's affixing his 95 thesis of protest against the Roman Catholic Church to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. He says through Luther's bold words, the Holy Spirit blew into flame the smoldering coals of other movements across Europe. And the land which lay in darkness for so long began to grow bright under the uncovered beauty of God's Word. But we cannot forget that the light, this beautiful light shining through the Word of God started with the fire of flames as people were being burned alive because of their desire to see the Bible back in the hands of people, the Bible back in the church. So never forget that, we, yes, we have this 
beautiful light shining in the Reformation, but that light starts shining through the flames of people being burned alive because of their desire to see the Bible in the center of the church once again. Philip Schaff, he's a historian. He says, Pope Innocent III was of the opinion that the Scriptures were too deep for the common people as they surpass even the understanding of the wise and the learned. Several synods in Gaul during the 13th century prohibited the reading of the Romanic translation and ordered the copies to be burned. Archbishop Berthold of Mainz, in an edict of January 4th, 1486, threatened with excommunication all who ventured to translate and to circulate translations of sacred books especially the Bible, without his permission. Then he goes on and says, The Council of Constance, 1415, which burned John, or John Huss, however you want to call and Jerome of Prague, condemned also the writings and the hopes of Wycliffe, the first translator of the whole Bible into the English language, to the flames. And Arundel, Archbishop of Canterbury, and Chancellor of England denounced him as, here's how he calls Wycliffe, the pestilent wretch of damnable, damnable heresy, who, as a complement of his wickedness, invented a new translation of scriptures into his mother tongue. How dare him try to translate the Bible into a language that people can understand? Many Christians, you can open their Bibles and see Jeremiah 36, King Jehoiakim, he's in his winter palace getting warmed by the fire. And as he receives the scrolls of Jeremiah, do you know what he does with the scrolls of Jeremiah? Yes, he cuts and throws into the fire. And that's what many of these religious leaders did with Christians as they were trying to bring the Word of God. They burned them in an attempt to burn the Word of God. One scholar says, even a child can blow out the candles of his cake. But despite all his huffing and puffing, Satan has not been able to blow out the light ignited by the Reformation. In his providence, the Lord used the Reformers to again set his holy word, the more sure word of prophecy, of which Peter writes, as a light that shines in a dark place. Amen. All the hosts of Satan, all his armies, were not able to blow that light that started shining in the Reformation. And that's very important for us to think about the Reformation. Sadly, it's heartbreaking how many Christians have no idea and no interest whatsoever in this wonderful time in church history. So many Christians are more excited about Halloween and go getting candy with their kids than teaching about the Reformation. Shame on us. Our house is full of Halloween things and not a single thing about the Reformation. And the reason why we are here singing with our Bibles is because of the wonderful work of the Lord in history. 
Yesterday I was talking to a lady. She asked me, are you guys going trick-treating with the kids? And that's a wonderful time because I always say, no, we celebrate the Reformation. And people always ask, what is that? But I knew because she, she goes to a Lutheran church. So I said, you're a Lutheran, right? Yeah, I go to a Lutheran church. Like, Don't you celebrate the Reformation? She said, no, I, I have no idea what that is. She said, maybe it would be good for you to talk to my pastor. She, know, she knows a lot about that. Actually, she said, I was a Roman Catholic. Then I became a Christian. And I love the Lutheran church because it's just like the Roman Catholic church. Hmm. That's where we are, brothers and sisters. Many pastors I talk to and I ask, what are you guys doing for the Reformation Sunday? Nothing. How can we not stand in awe and praise God for His marvelous work in history in raising men and women so we can be here today? Amen? William Cunningham, he's a church historian, he says, The Reformation from Popery in the 16th century was the greatest event or series of events that has happened since the close of the canon of scriptures. I don't know if I have Philip Sheff here. Yes. Philip Sheff, he says, the Reformation of the 16th century is next to the introduction of Christianity, the greatest event in history. It marks the end of the Middle Ages and the beginning of modern times. Starting from religion, it gave directly or indirectly a mighty impulse to every forward movement and made Protestantism the chief propelling force in the history of modern civilization. And we live in a time in our American culture where we want to destroy this history, this beautiful history. Our culture is throwing to the flames of fire this marvelous history of what God did during those days. And we must remember, great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in Him. Amen? And that's what we want to talk about today, the Great Reformation. But before going to the Reformation, we need to think about the deformation. To reform something, there must be deformed first. And you think about the church, as we ponder about the church, the formation, right? The formation of the church. The church, as we think about the new covenant, the formation of the church takes place primarily with the ascension of Christ, the coming of the Holy Spirit, empowering His servants to preach the, the Word. Churches are planted all over the world. A beautiful beautiful season, not perfect by no means. Just read the New Testament letters and you see that there is, there is sin remaining. But it is a beautiful season as the Holy Spirit is empowering people. Church is being planted. There is a pattern for church leadership. There is a pattern for worshiping the church being established. The writings are being circulated through the letters. God's Word is in the church, as people are reading letters or copies of the letters. But something takes place. And that's around 312 A.D. with what they call the conversion of Constantine. 
the emperor of Rome. But that should not get us by surprise. The New Testament has always warned us, warned us about false teachers and days coming when people do not endure sound teaching. And I would say, especially with Constantine 312, the Edict of Milan in 313, a process of deformation starts to take place in the church. One church historian, he says, between 313 and 590, the old Catholic church, in which each bishop had been unequal, became the Roman Catholic church, in which the bishop of Rome won primacy over the bishops. The practical union of the church and the state under Constantine and his successors led to the secular, secularization of the church. The Eastern Church became a department of the state. The influx of pagans into the church through the mass, the mass conversion movements of the era contributed to the paganization, the church becoming more and more pagan, the pa paganization of worship as the church tried to make these barbarians feel at home within its fold. The paganization of the worship. That's exactly what we see today in so many professing churches. We need to entertain people. Entertain pagans. Bring the pagans and entertain them. And that's the life of so many that call themselves churches. So from the 4th century until the 16th century, much of Christianity was radically deformed. Christ was removed from the center. The worship of Mary and saints, the idolatry of relics, the necessity of indulgence, the lack of knowledge of the scriptures, the necessity of works to achieve salvation, creation of purgatory, the table instead of the pulpit, and so many other perversions. That's the deformation of the church. And that leads us to what we call the Reformation. The church is reformed. was formed, deformed, and then there is the Reformation of the church. The Reformation is often called the Protestant Reformation. Why Protestant? Yeah, it's a protest. A protest. A protest was a formal declaration expressing disapproval of something. And that's exactly what they're doing. A formal declaration of disapproval of the false teachings, of the neglect of the scriptures, of the heresies. That's what the Reformation was. It was a protest through the proclamation of the Bible. We can never forget that Reformation and the Bible and the scriptures are inseparable. Joe Beek, he says, the Reformation possessed at its heartbeat a devotion to the pure truth of the Holy Scriptures, especially manif manifest in the passionate exposition of the biblical doctrines of salvation by grace, true worship, and the pursuit of holiness. The Word of God preached was properly, properly held to be the central engine for the breaking down of Satan's realm and upbuilding of God's kingdom. In the midst of those dark days, God's light starts to shine as people start bringing the Bible back to the church. And as the Reformation is advancing, as the Reformation is growing, more reformers, people start, to, start trying to summarize the main 
the main doctrines of this Protestant Reformation. What, what are they protesting? What is this protest all about? And that's when you have the solas, or soli, because they're trying to summarize with very brief statements what this protest is all about. So, if we think about the Reformation as this strong building, a building for an army, we can see the sola scriptura, the scriptures alone as the foundation. Everything is going to be built upon the Word of God. So the sola scriptura is the foundation. That's the, everything else is built there. Then you can put sola gratia, sola fide, and solus Christus in the center. Christ holds the whole thing together. And in the top there, soli deo gloria. To God alone be the glory. Those are the solas that summarize the great reformation. And my, my goal is not to emphasize sola scriptura, but the power of the scriptures in the reformation. And the, the doctrine of sola scriptura flows from the understanding that the Bible must be in the center of the church and in the center of our lives. So for us to understand the darkness of those days, a little bit more of church history is important here. Philip Sheff, he gives us some understanding of how dark those days were. He says, theology was a maze of scholastic subtleties. Aristotelian dialectics and idle speculation. Oh, Greek philosophy. That's what they were studying. But they ignored the great doctrines of the gospel. Crowstad, the older friend of Luther, confessed that he had been a doctor of divinity before he had seen a complete copy of the Bible. This guy has a doctor in divinity and he hasn't even seen a Bible. Education was confined to priests and nobles. The priest's chief duty was to perform, by his magic words, the miracle of transubstantiation during the Mass. And to offer the sacrifice of the Mass for the living and the dead in a foreign tongue. Preaching was neglected and had reference mostly to indulgence, alms, pilgrimage, and processions. Saint worship and image worship Superstitious rites and ceremonies obstructed the direct worship of God in spirit and in truth. No wonder those were called the dark ages. Dark indeed. As I said, that should not surprise us. The New Testament alerts us. Paul says, now the Spirit expressly says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, in the latter times, in the last days, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Listen to this. Through the insincerity of liars whose conscience are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. That's one very practical application 
to those days. Paul also says, I charge you in 2 Timothy 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the word. And that's what was lacking completely during those days. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander into myths. So the Bible prepares us for these things. And it started taking place, and it just grew during those centuries. Very, very dark. Here is a little bit of the history of the Bible so you can understand why the Bible was buried under the debris of men's tradition. Why for so long they didn't have a Bible in their hands. So you think about the Old Testament. Let's put 1400 Moses writing the Torah to 400 probably the last book. That's when you have approximately the completion of the Old Testament. In 250 BC, the Old Testament is translated to Greek. That's, we have the Septuagint. So in 250 BC, we have the Old Testament being translated to Greek because Greek is the language people need to learn. People want to learn about the Lord. So in order to spread His Word, it's translated into Greek. The New Testament was written in Koine Greek. That's the Greek that everybody could speak and understand. We have between 40 and 90 A.D., the writing of the New Testament. Between 180 and 300, we have different translations taking place. Old Latin, Old Syriac, Coptic. So there are some translations taking place. And here's what is important. In 380 A.D., that's when Jerome translates into, into the Vulgate. The Vulgate Latin, that's the Latin that people could understand. So he translates the Bible into Latin. And this Bible became the standard Bible for the next 1,200 years. The Roman Catholic Church made the Latin Vulgate the official Bible. It was illegal to translate the Bible into other languages. It's during the time that we have the rise of popery, the emphasis on the Eucharist, the Roman Catholic Church is the ultimate and primary source of true interpretation of the Bible and the worship of idols. Nobody could translate the Bible. Language is changing. And nobody knows what the Bible says. Just Latin. Just in the Vulgate. And nobody can translate into other languages. Look at that. 380, that's when you have the Latin Vulgate. In 1380 A.D., John Wycliffe translates the Bible from the Latin to the English. He understands the need of people to have the Bible in their own language. And hear what the Roman Catholic Church told John Wycliffe. By this translation, the Scriptures have become vulgar. And they are more available to lay and even to women who can read than they were to learned scholars who have a high intelligence. So, the pro of the gospel is scattered and trodden underfoot by swine, as 
he's translating the Bible to the language that people can read. John Wycliffe replied, English men learn Christ's law best in English. Moses heard God's law in his own language. So did Christ's apostles. So, it's a period of darkness. Much darkness. No Bibles, no preaching of the Word, no faithful ministries. Of course, you're going to have here and there, but overall, I'm saying no, nothing. No studying or reading of the Scriptures. The Bibles were removed from the common people. No pulpits. No Word. You have a table for the Eucharist. That's what's taking place. And once the Scriptures are abandoned, people are left with heresy and all types of different entertainments. You could not choose a church. You see, today you can leave here and say, I'm going to find a different church. You could not do that. Isn't that amazing how we take for granted? Jesse, how many Bibles do you have at home? I have a bunch of Bibles. I'm pretty sure that you all have a bunch of Bibles. Shame on us, we don't even read our Bibles. These people have no Bibles. Dark, very dark. Similar to the scroll of Jeremiah, the Bible had been thrown into the flames of human tradition. It was buried under the darkness of the Roman Catholic traditions. But God in His mercy starts to bring His light back into place. The light shines in the darkness. And in the 12th, 12th century, you have the Waldensians. Waldensian, and the Waldensians, is trans, they are translating the Bible into a French dialect. They're a group of people and they're disobeying the government. They're translating the Bible into their French dialect. And what the families do is they memorize as much as they can of the Bible because they know that pretty soon they're going to take their Bibles away. In the 14th century, you have John Wycliffe. We talk about him. In the 15th century, we have John Huss. And he's not so much translating, but he's preaching. He's preaching the Scriptures in the language that people can understand. He's proclaiming God's word and people are loving that. And guess what? The Roman Catholic Church is hating that. <laughs> Martin Luther, we come to the 16th century, and he is a key figure as he translates the Bible into German. But before we get to that, it's important to remember in 1517, that's when he, he nailed his thesis to the, to the door. And thesis number 62 says, The true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. And it's this understanding that the most beautiful, glorious treasure that the church has is the gospel. It's this understanding that caused Luther to start fighting with all that he has to translate the Bible and give the gospel to people. So, 
in the 16th century, as the study of Greek and Hebrew languages are recovered, Martin Luther translates the Bible into German, with the New Testament being completed in 1522. In 1526, we have a... This is one of those men that you must know. You must know. William Tyndale. 1526, William Tyndale completed a translation of the Greek New Testament into English. A few years later, he, was, he also translated the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. Shortly thereafter, he was arrested and executed as a heretic. You have a picture of William Tyndale, one of his portraits. He has a finger pointing to a book, and that book certainly is the Bible. And it says in that painting, To scatter Roman darkness by this light, the loss of land and life, I will reckon, is light. In October 6, 1536, we are told uh, as he is about to die, the executor, in an act of mercy to William Tyndale, he strangled him before leading the wood pile around him. It would be better to die strangled, less pain than being burned alive. So the executor, in an act of mercy, maybe he liked William Tyndale, he strangled him before burning him. According to John Fox, the last words that Tyndale was heard to utter were, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. Did the Lord answer his prayer? Amen. Just within a few years, King Henry VIII authorized the Great Bible in England. The Great Bible is translated largely based on Tyndale's translation. Isn't that beautiful? And then the King James is also heavily based on William Tyndale's. So, the Lord answered his prayer and he opened the, eye of, the eyes of the King of England and the Bible was translated and in the hands of Christians now. Throughout much of the 16th century Europe, in Europe, those who dare to translate the Word of God and thereby unchain the Bible from its Latin coffin face the possibility of being burned alive. The church leaders, the church leaders knew that a Bible-reading people would see through the errors, superstition, and corruptions of the Roman Catholic Church. Right? Why, why, why are they hiding the Bible? Why don't they want the people to have Bibles in their hands? The clarity of the Scriptures, they're going to read and they're going to see that what they're teaching doesn't match. It doesn't match with the Word of God. So what do we do? Remove the Bible. Don't let them have the Bible. If anybody tries to give them the Bible, let's burn them. Kill them. And the reformers came crashing against this false teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. The common thread from reformer to reformer was an undying commitment to the authority and sufficiency of the Scriptures, such that they were willing to sacrifice everything, including their own lives, to get the Word of God into the hands of the people. 
They did this because they understood that the power of the spiritual reformation and revival was not in them, but in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Last quote from friend, uh, Philip Schaff. He says, and I think that's beautiful. He says, while the humanists went back to the ancient classics and revived the spirit of Greek and Roman paganism, the reformers went back to the sacred scriptures in the original language and revived the spirit of the apostolic Christianity. They were fired by an enthusiasm for the gospel such as had never been known since the days of Paul. Christ rose from the grave of human traditions and preached again His words of life and power. The Bible heretofore, a book of, priestly only, of priests only, was now translated anew and better than ever into the vernacular tongues of Europe and made a book of the people. Every Christian man could henceforth go to the fountainhead of inspiration and sit at the feet of the divine teacher without priestly permission and intervention. Yes. Yes. It was if Christ rose from that grave of human tradition and started shining His light once again in His church. Think about how, how did these reformers fight an empire? The Roman Catholic Church was a massive empire. How did they fight that? What were their weapons? Luther, Tyndale, Calvin, Huss. What were their weapons? You see, we in America, we think we need to get guns to fight. Let's buy guns to fight. What did they use? What did they use? The Word of God. That's what they were using. They fought a massive empire preaching, proclaiming the Scriptures. Luther said, I oppose indulgence and all the papists, but never with force. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's Word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And why I slept or drank Winterberg beer with my friend Philip in Amsdorf, the Word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such, a lo such losses upon it. I did nothing. The Word did what? Everything. Everything. One man who writes the biography of John Calvin, he says, Sunday after Sunday, day after day, he would climb into his pulpit and simply expose God's Word. Preaching, expository. Book by book, chapter by chapter. E.C. Dargan, uh, he's a church historian, he says, the great events and achievements of the mighty revolution were largely the work of preachers and preaching. That's how the reformers were called. They want to be called preachers. Because that was their duty, to proclaim God's word. For it was by the word of God, through the ministry of earnest men who believed, loved, and taught it, that the best and most enduring work of the reformation was done. 
so that the relationship between reformation and preaching may be succinctly described as one of mutual dependence, aid, and guidance. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 23. Really quickly. Jeremiah chapter 23. That's a wonderful chapter. Jeremiah 23. There is a, in the beginning, you see, of Jeremiah 23, there is an oracle of judgment and hope, judgment upon the false shepherds, but hope that a new shepherd will come. And then Jeremiah continues, and he starts bringing some oracles, some prophecies of condemnation upon those false shepherds, false teachers in Judah. And we saw earlier, but here it is, verse 23, Jeremiah 23, 23. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not feel heaven and earth? I have heard what the prophets have said, who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long shall there, shall there be lies in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies and who prophesy deceit of their own heart, who think to make my people forget my name by their dreams that they tell one another, even as their fathers forgot my name for Baal? Oh, let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. For what has straw in common with wheat? declares the Lord. Wheat feeds you. Wheat makes bread. Is not my word like fire, declares Yahweh, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. And that's exactly what the word of God is. It is a fire. It is a fire. And it's always either bringing judgment or salvation. God's truth is like a fire in contrast to the useless, powerless words of false prophets. God's word is penetrating, purifies, and consumes evil. Jeremiah himself had experienced that, just like the reformers. Remember, the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah. He experienced the word of God, and that's why he becomes a powerful prophet. Not because of who he is, but because of the word in him and the word being declared by him. Moreover, God's word is full of power like a hammer, strongly wielded. His message does not lull men into their sins. It crushes the heart to bring it to repentance. That's exactly what the word of God is. Spurgeon commenting here, he says, Men cannot go to sleep when their fingers are on fire. Neither can they when the true gospel is sounding aloud in their ears. The power of the Reformation was grounded in the Word of God. God's fire. And remember, fire consumes and fire brings light and warm. So it was consuming all the false teachings so God's people could be warm under His presence 
and see all the falsehood. And then Peter, look at Peter. Turn with me to Second Peter. And then we are done here. Second Peter chapter 1. Second Peter 1. Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, starting verse 16, 2 Peter 1, 16, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but when we were eyewitness of His majesty, for when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. What mountain is that? The Mount of Transfiguration. Remember, Peter and John and James, they are there, and they see the Transfiguration, the majestic moment when God reveals more and more about Jesus to those disciples. But look at what Peter says. Even though he had that glorious experience, he says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. It says, yes, that was a wonderful experience, but doesn't come close to the reliability and the trustworthiness of the Scriptures. So much for all the charismatic and Pentecostal movement that's all about experience. It says, yeah, that was a wonderful experience, but doesn't come close to the Scriptures. To which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining. Here's how he compared the scriptures. To a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Remember, we started the sermon talk about Pilgrim's, Pilgrim's Progress. Then we moved to the Lord of the Rings. And when you come to the Lord of the Rings, at the end of the two towers... There is a moment there that they are surrounded by darkness, heavy darkness. And Sam reminds Frodo. Do you remember that? The lady's gift, the star glass, a light to you in dark places. Frodo remembers, yes. Why had I forgotten it? A light when all other lights go out. And now indeed, light alone can help us. Stephen Dempster, he says, Holy Scripture was such a light in ancient times and is such a light today as the darkness closes in, particularly now in our days. We need that light to help us when all other lights go out. And my prayer is that the Lord will use the Reformation to truly fire in us, setting us a fire for a zeal for Him and His Word and His Word alone. May the death of precious men and women in order for us to have what we have today catapult us into a new zeal for God and God's Word. 
I'm resolved that we, we, we will be faithful to the name of this church. Gracious cross, reformed church. Reformed church. Why reformed? That's so divisive. I heard people saying that. Why reformed in their name? That's divisive. No. It's because we stand upon the shoulders of those who came before us. We will not recant. We will not renounce. We will not repudiate. We will not replace. We will not revoke the glory and power of this book here. We will stand on this book and we will proclaim this book and we will live and die for this book. Gracious Cross Reformed Church. The book takes place as the central aspect of our lives as a church. Honestly, this book has killed me, has brought me back to life. This book has changed my life and keeps changing my life. This book sheds light in the darkness. This book sets me on fire to love my wife, my family, to love my church more and more. And how can I deny, recant, revoke, and replace this book? By no means. By no means. So I'm resolved, and I hope that you all are resolved also, to stand on the shoulders of this mighty man and honor the Lord by keeping the centrality of this church, His Word and His Word alone. May the words of Philip Schaff about the Reformers be spoken of us. The Reformers went back to the sacred scriptures in the original languages and revived the spirit of the apostolic Christianity. They were fired by an enthusiasm for the gospel such as had never seen before since the days of Paul. Christ rose from the grave of human traditions and preached again His words of life and power. So as we preach the word, as we teach the word, as we sing the word in this church, may Christ rise from the grave of human tradition and shine His light and draw people into His kingdom and condemn, judge others because His word is never void. It is a fire. It is a fire. Either judging or saving. Either condemning or sanctifying. So we keep holding these scriptures. Amen? Father, we thank you for your marvelous, marvelous, wonderful work in history. You are the Lord of history. All hail the power of Jesus' name. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, we thank you for men and women who were eager to die the most heinous death in order for us to be here today with the Bible in our hands, singing, praising, loving you more and more. Thank you for the Reformation, Lord. Thank you for your work of power and grace. And Lord, how we need how we need to keep reforming, keep going back to your word 
So help us. We know, we know our enemy. We know his weapon. We know his desire to distract us from the truth. So deliver us from the evil one, Lord. Guard this church. Protect this church. We all here have experienced the power of your word. And those who have not, I pray that today your word would be like fire in their hearts. Like Christian, they would say, what shall I do? And run to you, Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.